0: Okay, welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. And this time I'm actually trying a new technique where I'm going to interview somebody live. And we're at the Australian New Zealand Society of Criminology Conference at the University of Sydney. And today I'm very happy to have James Martin. And we're going to talk about his new book, Drugs on the Dark Net. How Crypto Markets Are Transforming the Global Trade in Illicit Drugs. So, James, thank you very much for uh, participating in the interview.
1: Thank you. Uh, Cheers. Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. Um, So we'll start off, as I said, with our normal question. Tell us about yourself and what your background is and how you come to be interested in this topic and write this book.
1: Sure. Well, um, yeah, as I said, uh, I'm... um Dr. James Martin. I'm director of research at uh, the Department of Policing, Intelligence, and Counterterrorism at Macquarie University. Uh, I also convened the criminology program there. And uh, I guess I fell into researching this by accident. It wasn't traditionally my field—the sort of online crime space. Uh, my PhD research was on uh, South African vigilante gangs, which I guess is quite a different, Very different. area. Uh, although there were some theoretical similarities between this research and that earlier research as well, but. Um, it was mainly through uh, hearing about Silk Road through the media, and I uh, knew some people that had used the site uh, for various purposes. And when, as an academic, when you hear about something that sounds astounding, you know, everyone's, every academic's first impulse is to uh, say, "Okay, well, what's been written? What's been done about it?" Yet, and I realised uh, at the time, and still to an extent uh, to the present. There's remarkably little uh, research has been done in this area, so I sensed it was uh, a bit of a vacant space yep. and uh, a bit of unmapped territory, so I thought to go out and map it myself.
0: <laughs> Take the opportunity when it arises, yeah. absolutely. And I think it's a fascinating area. I've only ever seen one other presentation at a conference about it, and that was two years ago at the American Society of Criminology, so I think I was telling you yesterday. And that one even was purely descriptive, hey, there's a thing called Silk Road, and this is what it does. Now, since then, Silk Road's been closed down. Do you want to give us a, a bit of a background to even this, what is Silk Road, how it worked, and the uh, infamous character behind it, and how it was closed down?
1: Sure. Well, Silk Road was, uh, I guess, uh, the best-known crypto market. It wasn't the first one. Uh, there are a few uh, uh, sort of forerunners to it, but it was definitely the the best, the most well-known, and it really popularised it. It brought this online uh, darknet, drug trade in particular, into the public spotlight. Um, It was, uh, it looks like I should say, allegedly, um, the guy behind it, Ross Ulbricht, uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts, um, he had this idea basically, as soon as uh, the Tor network, which is the darknet, it's an encrypted part of the internet. Um, That had been running since about 2003. That was set up with the the help of U.S. Naval Intelligence and a few uh, public-private organizations. Ostensibly, it allows people to communicate um, online but have their identity and their location scrambled. Um, So that's part of the communications technology. Um, According to Dread Pirate Roberts, in his 10-page magazine interview he did with Forbes uh, about three months before his arrest, uh, he said basically that was the first part. The second part was Bitcoin uh, and the development of cryptocurrencies and as soon as those things were together it allowed transactions to take place um, between people online without uh, any real, certainly any feasible um, way for law enforcement or other authorities to track what was going on. So they were the really two key ingredients. So Dread Pirate Roberts. In his interview, he said as soon as those two things came together, it was just a matter of time before something like Silk Road was developed.
0: Because they, it really, the Tor network is not illegal. Participating in it is not illegal. Bitcoins aren't illegal. So they're taking two legitimate tools and creating an illicit marketplace out of those two tools.
1: Absolutely. And accessing crypto markets isn't illegal either. It's not illegal mm. to look at these sites. Uh, but... Um, yeah, certainly once you're buying, selling illicit products, then yeah, then you can yeah. cross very quickly into the boundaries of illegality. Uh, yeah.
0: So it's an in- interesting point. There. Where are you buying it? So if I went onto a place like Silk Road and I bought crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. Is there a legal question about where I've actually carried out the purchase or is it about the fact that I'm importing it, say, into Australia, that the, that's the criminal offence? What do they charge you with?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it's a, it's a conundrum for the lawyers and it's a conundrum for law enforcement is what you can actually be charged with. If you have purchased, say, crack cocaine, uh, the only way the police would know about it is uh, really if they intercepted it in customs mm. uh, and then they've just got a name and an address and not necessarily anything else that ties you to the offense unless they've set up some sort of electronic surveillance or they surveil you after the delivery of the package so you know you can see you opening it and enjoying it Mm. um, or whatever and you know can tell that it's intended for you but short of those things it would be very difficult to charge you with anything uh, other than possession. That's right. And even then demonstrating in court beyond a reasonable doubt that you knew that you were in possession of this substance if it had just been delivered to your house is problematic.
0: and Very problematic, yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's take a step back and let's just talk about crypto markets in general. And what are the sort of things that people are selling in these illicit marketplaces? It's not just drugs.
1: No, drugs does seem to be the biggest um, single category, uh, if you like, of illicit products out there. But there are books, for example, you've got your terrorist handbook, those sorts of things that you wouldn't be able to get through any legitimate means. Um, People sell stolen credit card information. That's a big and growing aspect of the crypto market trade. Um, One of the biggest concerns uh, would be over things like child exploitation material, but the mainstream crypto markets, so Silk Road 2, Agora, which is the biggest one we think now and Pandora all have strict prohibitions on anything to do with child exploitation material. So um, there, there definitely is a dark net trade and that kind of stuff, but it's very strictly segregated from this kind of more mainstream types of illicit products. Right.
0: The, it's a very interesting marketplace now. As uh, you were pointing out yesterday in your presentation, when Silk Road went under because of the arrest of the Dread Pirate Roberts It didn't actually close down the market because there was a flaw in the whole scheme that allowed new markets to pop up everywhere. Do you want to discuss that?
1: Sure. Well, Silk Road, um, as I mentioned, was never... It wasn't the first, and it wasn't the only one operating at the time. There were other crypto markets that were operating concurrently with Silk Road. The Silk Road was undoubtedly the biggest, and it absorbed... uh, It was the dominant market player that absorbed all of the uh, the dominant market share. Um, So when Silk Road shut down, uh, law enforcement were quite quick at the time to call this the beginning of the end of the online drug trade, uh, and that was really premature. What we've actually seen is the closure of Silk Road was actually an act of creative destruction. It freed up the marketplace uh, and allowed new, more innovative crypto markets either to expand or to develop new, uh, entire, entirely new crypto markets.
0: So what are these markets like? Um, they look so much like an eBay style with all the same... Uh, customer references and advertising as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. They're, um, they're really striking. the uh, mm. First time, I think, I think everyone sort of has their mind blown a bit the first time they actually jump on the darknet and have a look at what the sites look like because on the one hand, they look quite mundane and prosaic. You know, there's, you've got different product categories, you've got complaint procedures, you've got customer support lines uh, and on the bigger sites, these will be 24 hours a day, multilingual, you know, customer support. And there's a lot of um, corporate sloganeering and kind of marketing rhetoric, you know, like we, we owe, you know, have an oath to customers about providing the top levels of service, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a lot of the complaints that go through there about minor delays in shipping time and you know, quite mundane, prosaic mm. kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily associate it with the drama and violence of the conventional mm. illicit drugs trade. Um, but True. then when you look at the products, they they're incredibly striking. Uh, because it's literally any, well, certainly any drug you can think of uh, and a lot you've probably never heard of as well. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Uh, well, anyone who's used eBay would be familiar with the customer feedback system and that same system applies on most of these markets.
1: Yeah, and I'd actually say this is probably probably more important on crypto markets than it is even on something like eBay because on eBay, even if you do get ripped off, there are, legitimate recourse mechanisms. You Mm. can take someone to quad. You know, I mean, it's difficult if you're buying from someone in another country. um, You can trace financial payments. You can – there are legitimate recourse mechanisms. But on crypto markets, it's one of the uh, the big – one of the really distinctive characteristics of these sites – is once you conduct a transaction, once you send someone bitcoins, there's absolutely no way of getting them back. You don't know who that person is, where they are, and they can abscond with your funds with no recourse at all. Obviously, you can't go to the police, and even if you did go to the police, you wouldn't be able to tell them anything about no, where, where no. you got it. Uh, so, customer feedback is absolutely critical because it provides consumers with a relatively objective uh source of information about the reliability of the goods and the crucial thing about customer feedback is crypto markets like eBay the administrators of the site don't actually sell anything themselves they host the site infrastructure and they take a commission on all sales that are conducted through the sites and they're the ones that control the customer feedback so anybody that buys something from an online dealer hosts feedback and even if it's bad feedback um the dealer can't remove that negative feedback from their seller page. So it makes online dealers exceptionally sensitive to their customers' preferences and to their customers' expectations and feedback.
0: Mm. I also know you had the guarantees of delivery. I mean, we're shifting illegal goods across national borders, but there are some levels of guarantee about when it'll arrive, if it'll arrive, replacement value... Which is utterly bizarre yeah. for the type of market we're talking about.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, um, it's really strange. The, the top-ranked dealers, so the ones with the, with the highest levels of customer feedback and who attract the most business as a result of that, that sort of stellar online reputation, sometimes have pages and pages of terms and conditions. Uh, and it's all about managing customer expectations to try and avoid that negative customer feedback. So uh, as an online dealer, the last thing you want is someone uh, say, so buying drugs from uh, Europe you know, to Australia and then complaining about it not arriving in five days. So they're very specific in saying, okay, well, if you're buying from Australia, uh, you need to be prepared to wait 10 days or 15 days or whatever it is. Um, also, uh, one of the things that I think you would never see uh, in conventional street dealing are, are refunds. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, with, with the top dealers, again, there will be... There'll be different levels of refunds depending uh, on where you're buying goods. At. Um, so buying to- goods into Australia, for example, usually lower levels of refunds because we have quite a, um, a rigorous customs inspection regime and we're known uh, to have more deliveries intercepted. Still, obviously, enough that it's profitable for dealers to try um, and we've obviously got records of success of them doing that on these sites. Um, but... What
0: about the, the, the way they're sending this? So they're getting things successfully through customs in Australia. And Australia is, is, a, is as you said, a very strict um, customs regime. We scan everything that comes through the post, and I'm assuming the post is the place that these things are usually moving, especially if they're moving in 10 days. So what are they actually doing to get these things through?
1: Yeah, well, this is the really clever part, I guess. Mm. Um, I mean, drugs are being sent through the post... For a long time, as long as there's been posts, people have been sending, you know, things that um, contraband and particularly drugs uh, from place to place. What's different about what's happening now is uh, back in the pre-crypto market era or or even the pre-internet era, uh, if you wanted to send drugs in the post, you really had to figure out how to do it by yourself. And you're accepting all of the risk yourself and trying to figure out how to do that, you're the one who cops the loss of funds. If it's intercepted, you're the one that gets arrested and goes to jail if if you stuff it up. What's happening now is that the top ranked dealers are starting to actually uh, provide information to the rest of the crypto market community about how to conceal drugs effectively and and defeat the different interdiction tools that are out there. So if anyone logged on to any of these crypto markets, there are pages and pages of discussion forums Uh, from people with demonstrated records of success about how to get things through customs. So they'd use things like moisture barrier bags, which sniffer dogs can't smell through, double bleaching, uh, making sure you're wearing multiple pairs of gloves so fingerprints don't get um, uh, left on anything uh, inside, uh, properly weighting packages. All of these things that we know um, are potential red flags to have a item post inspected. And the reason we know the red flags is because we've actually had the risk matrixes leaked uh, onto uh, a number of these sites, uh, as well as documentation from the FBI, the DEA, Australia Post, UPS, mm. um, and even more incredibly, we've had um, Ask Me Anything, a- AMA uh, sessions with uh, postal employees uh, in, uh, in America, certainly, uh, about what exactly they look for. What, what would it attract suspicion? So there's a lot of knowledge now. There's a huge body of knowledge now that didn't exist before. Uh, so this
0: is a very unique internet thing. Yes. It couldn't have happened before in the same way as it's happening.
1: Absolutely not. And what, it's, what we're seeing is the long-term strategic knowledge advantage that law enforcement used to have, that customers used to have, because customs agencies around the world would talk to each other, and certainly yeah. national police forces would talk to each other, talk to postal companies, and develop... Intelligence developed these risk matrices so that they could have um, highly effective, efficient ways of targeting high-risk items and posts. Now we're seeing the dealers are developing their own counter-interdiction body of intelligence, their own knowledge about how to defeat these systems. So that knowledge advantage that law enforcement had is steadily being eroded now.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah, made a great comment yesterday that a lot of people, when they're buying products, are warned to not throw out their junk mail because that may be the mechanism they're using. To get the drugs to them, that it's so well disguised, it just looks like normal junk mail.
1: Yeah, there's um, for obvious reasons dealers are, are reluctant to specify, and they, and they make uh, they they make specific on their sites not for people to reveal how it was yeah. concealed in um, customer feedback, that sort of thing. But yeah, the comments on those sites don't throw away your junk mail because they've had customers have complaints, give them negative feedback because they've said, oh, my stuff hasn't arrived. Ah, and this, okay. is, this is how well it's concealed. Even people who are waiting for it, expecting for it, going through their mail, looking to see it, don't actually even know when it's arrived. Mm-hmm. So very sophisticated concealment techniques um, that so far with the top dealers, they're, they're, they're confident in defeating any customs ratio.
0: Wow. And this is very much a retail market or is there a wholesale component? do it as well?
1: It, it looks as though there's a mixture of the two. Um, it, there's been some research done recently um, that indicates as much as 40% of the crypto market uh, marketplace could be um, wholesalers, so dealers buying online and then using that to sell on. Uh, there is contention around that. It's difficult to define exactly what, how much is personal use. Personal use varies from person to person. But I'd say the bulk of what we can see at least on these sites being traded is for uh for retail personal customer use
0: yeah yeah and it seems to be the place that you'd be attracted to if you were trying to buy it would be a safer option because well i don't know has there ever been any police um uh, undercover work being conducted where they pretended to be a
1: seller uh i don't know actually i don't know about pretending to be a seller Mm. uh Certainly that they uh, have, and have admitted, um, mm. including the FBI and the AFP, um, the Australian Federal Police, uh, to posing as online buyers to try and gather information. But posing as a seller would be potentially problematic, A, because you could be accused of entrapment, but also yep. uh, I imagine that the police don't necessarily want to target the end users. No. Uh, and True. if it's predominantly a retail market, mm. um, that's what you're going to get.
0: Yeah. Yeah, It'd be very hard to investigate. I don't know what you could do. As you were saying, they couldn't close down the technology. The technology was sound. How did they actually capture
1: Dread uh, um, Pirate Roberts in the first place? What techniques did they use? It was a multi-pronged investigation. So there were people working on the cyber element, um, basically going through digital footprints. Mm. And uh, they, they figured out who he was. There was um, a comment that... Dread Pirate Roberts had made Spruiking Silk Road right when it was begun, and that's one of the weaknesses, yeah. was one of the weaknesses back uh, back when Silk Road was operating, was how, how do you popularise something that's hidden in yes. the darknet? So if you could trace back and find the first mentions, well, obviously it would have to be someone who knew something about how the site was running. Mm. Uh, so basically that's, you know, the FBI was... Uh, looking back in time to try and find those original comments, and then they found it was linked to his real name and his real address. So they were getting an idea of who he was. Concurrently, there was uh, an undercover investigation. Um, It looks as though uh, Dread Pirate Roberts refused to buy some bulk drugs that that an undercover agent wanted to sell him, but he referred them to one of his moderators. The moderator was compromised by this FBI sting, and then the moderator was compelled to blackmail Dread Pirate Roberts. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, eventually Dread Pirate Roberts called in. Uh, it looks as though all of this is allegedly, I should say, uh, is alleged to have called in a hit yes. um, from some undercover FBI agents who were trying to advertise hitman services on Silk Road. Uh, but again, interestingly, this is um, information information's come out, but the FBI haven't charged him with, uh, with attempted murder because... They were posing as the hitman, so yeah. it's potentially a trap as well.
0: That brings me back to something I, I forgot to ask you about earlier when we were talking about the marketplace. This ethical customer service is not the end of the ethics of the people who are running these very libertarian people running their drug sales. They also uh, often have limits on what they'll allow to be sold on their sites.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's not a um, it's not a value-free zone. Mm. You know, there was there was a, an interesting newspaper article that described it as a Isley spaceport, you know, the place <laughs> the where the wretched hive of scum and villainy where you yeah. anything's for sale. And that's really um, that's a colourful but it's a really inaccurate uh, yeah. description of these sites. They're not value-free zones. Um, there are often quite uh, explicit rules about what can and can't be sold. Um, usually what you will see is nothing involved in, in the harming of uh, other people. So um, you will see you know, strict prohibitions, for example, on child exploitation material. Um, but then you, you will see some sites sell weaponry, for example, um, firearms, tasers, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, whereas other sites will say strictly only deal in marijuana, for example. So there's, yeah. a, there's different uh, niche markets and different clientele and different products on each side.
0: And that may actually reflect where they were coming from. So I can imagine that Europeans or Australians, for example, would be far less likely to sell firearms, whereas someone from the United States may have less of a concern about firearms given the different cultural uh, responses to firearms in that country.
1: That's true, but there would be more of an incentive to try and acquire black market firearms here because of yes. the restricted control. So... <clears throat> um, Yeah, but at the same time, firearms, one of the tricky things about firearms is, is, well, it's quite easy compared with drugs. It's quite easy to smuggle a gram or two of cocaine or a 10-pack of pills in a normal business envelope. It's much harder to to do that with uh, with firearms. Uh, So trying to get something into Australia like that, I imagine, would be very problematic. Mm. Mm. So
0: what do you think police can actually do (laughs) to try and deal with this area? I mean, obviously, that's classic policing methods, undercover policing methods you've been discussing before that brought down Silk Road. Is that going to always be effective or is there some other whiz-bang, solution there?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think undercover will become less and less effective. I think mm-hmm. people have realised now, particularly with it being public knowledge, how Dread Pirate Roberts was taken down, uh, or part of his takedown was through this undercover operation, will just make people more and more protective um, Mm. online and and make sure that they're not exposed to that kind of investigation. So I think it was a bit of a one-trick pony. I don't think that that law enforcement will be able to rely on that strategy uh, again in the future. The technology side is the great unknown, really. Uh, It's it's developing both sides. It's it's an an arms race. Um, Mm. So law enforcement, which traditionally don't have particularly strong cyber capacities, yeah. Um, are working to develop in this area, but it's incredibly resource intensive, and it's also uh, it's also difficult to justify, I imagine, budget wise. You know, in the end, law enforcement want bang for their buck. They want yeah. uh, they want the table packed with the you know the kilos of cocaine and the guns, mm-hmm. and preferably some tattooed Mexicans or bikers. You know, symbols of threat that they can say we're taking this off the street. Um, yeah. Whereas this is quite it's quite difficult to get those same levels. Um, of uh, news value, you know, newsworthy arrests out of sites like this. uh, Because it arrives unobtrusively in the mail, crypto markets aren't associated with with violence, so there's not the same level of public concern about them. Uh, And we would have to guess, although there's been little work done on this, that a lot of the customers using these sites would be relatively middle-class people with uh, computers, bank accounts enough education to be able to operate these systems. So, again, not the kind of drug users necessarily that are of greatest concern to the general public either.
0: Right. So what's the future for all of this?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. As long as the tech holder, I guess that's the real thing here. If if there's some magical breakthrough... um, uh, solution to all of this encryption, then it could all go away overnight. Mm. I doubt that that will happen uh, and the people investing in these science clearly doubt it will happen as well. So it looks to be at the moment that we're coming into a new sort of stage of decentralization where new uh, crypto markets are opening up all the time, each trying to offer more competitive and better deals than the last, but also trying to establish themselves as reputable trusted brands. And that's one of the interesting things we're seeing on the online space. We're seeing this gentrification of the drug market where more and more, because these sites and the vendors operate online, they don't need to maintain this violent deterrence, this sort of hard man persona. Uh, they, they're free to create this more sensitive um, uh, retail style that's attuned, closely attuned to their customers' preferences and customers' needs. It'll be really
0: interesting when this gradual... Uh, reduction of criminalisation of marijuana in various places around the world, and they're talking in Australia at the moment about bringing in a bill for um, legalising medical marijuana, whether you'll see any of the sellers who have a great brand move themselves to the legitimate online market with this reliable, serviced brand.
1: Yeah, that would be fascinating. Uh, Yeah, that would be be interesting to see if anyone made that transition. And it would be interesting to, to see now. I mean, I don't think anyone's done this research what's happened in Colorado, what's happened yeah. um, in other places that have decriminalized um, or legalized, completely legalized marijuana. Um, you know, in the end, that's that's the only thing that's really going to take drugs off the dark and short of some miracle in breaking through the
0: encryption. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. So, what's the next thing you're going to work on?
1: Oh, there's. I, I think we're mm. going to stay in the online drugs area for a while. There's, yeah, you know, it I think is, it could
0: keep you going for a very long time. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's still a really unmapped space. You know, I think there's some good ethnographic work to be done. Um, these are real. They're not just sites for the commission of cybercrime. They're also very cohesive um, communities. Uh, mm. Community is is one of the words that's thrown a lot, thrown around a lot on these sites. There's a real sense of strong collective identity and subcultural values that vary between science and science. I'd like to explore that. I'd also really like to get into um, looking at uh, how online drug markets are affecting offline drug markets, mm. whether it's contributing to a gentrification of the drugs trade offline uh, as well as dealers more and more uh, don't necessarily need to source their drugs from uh, the traditional sources so they can source them online as well.
0: So people can, very much like uh, Free Trade Coffee, say, well, I'm going to buy meth, but I'm going to buy it from nice people.
1: Well, there's, yeah, there, there's I'm not going to
0: buy it from bikers. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Are people online then going to be able to say, hey, we didn't make this in the back of a van or you know, in a toilet bowl. This is a high-quality product.
1: Yeah, they're, they're already doing that. That's one of the really funny things about this uh, trade is we're starting to see claims to ethical sourcing, fair trade, cocaine. Uh, these kinds of things where, or by buying this opium, you're supporting peasant farmers and not organized crime groups. Um, Very difficult to authenticate these kinds of claims. But, um, yeah, again, it shows to the kind of customer base, the fact that, you know, these are not necessarily uh, your your stereotypical drug, well, stereotypical, your average drug user is not your stereotypical drug user anyway. No. Um, But, you know, if people want to buy fair trade coffee, fair trade fair
0: trade chocolate, why not fair trade cocaine as well? Absolutely Okay, well thank you very much James Martin, uh, we've been discussing your book Drugs on the Darknet and this is a Palgrave Pivot book which I highly recommend Palgrave Pivot I actually published with them as well, so if anyone wants a good read and they turn around very quickly these these books, I would recommend that you go and definitely read this one, this will give you a very unique view on the way that uh, drug markets can work, so thank you again Thanks Mark okay.